Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Rob Port here on 970 WDAY. Good afternoon, Nathiel. How are you? Doing pretty good. We've had a uh, run to the fair for fair food. Well, one of us made the run, so I got a delicious Red River Valley Fair brat. I'm feeling pretty good. Yeah. Well, that fair <laughs> food is not... When the fair comes, diets just go out the window. Diets, it's... Yeah, I'm not even pretending that calories yeah. are a real thing for the next week. Calories yeah. calories are fake news, Rob. Did you know? Yeah, Did you know that calories are fake news? I don't think that's how that works. Oh, totally is. <laughs> That's that's the world we're living now, where everybody just sort of believes what they want to believe, right? We were talking about that yesterday. I this is a great what a, what a great metaphor, Natil, for where America's at right now, where everybody just believes what they want to believe, and we don't have to engage anybody else. And anybody who's saying anything that you disagree with is a Nazi or fake news or whatever. Keep your uh, fake news out of my calories situation. Yeah, and that's where we're at. Uh, speaking of. Um, well, it's not fake news. It's definitely news. Donald Trump Jr. emailing with, um, I, I guess it was like a, an entertainment publicist of, of some sort, uh, emailing with him and setting up a meeting with an attorney and, and was told in the email that he was going to be provided, you know, some sort of negative information about Hillary Clinton, courtesy of the Russian government. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Also coming up later in the program. Uh, we're going to have on Eileen Norcross. She is the director for state and local policy at the Mercatus Center, George Mason University. Uh, we're going to talk. They just put out their report about fiscal solvency and North Dakota ranked number two in the nation. Not too bad. Uh, Minnesota ranked number 24. Not as good. But yet it seems like the two states have very different situations. North Dakota just came through a legislative session where lawmakers had to slash and burn budgets in order to make ends meet, thanks to falling revenues. How can North Dakota be number two on this list and Minnesota number 24? Minnesota's had budget surpluses. So we'll talk with uh, Eileen about that coming up at 1.30. Your phone call, 701-293-9000, email talk at WDAY.com. But first things first, what are we making of this email, this Donald Trump Jr. email? Now, <laughs> the Democratic response to it has been about as measured as you would expect. Uh, former Hillary Clinton running mate Tim Kaine, uh, going so far as to accuse Donald Trump Jr. of treason. Treason. Which is pretty remarkable. Um, so I'm, I'm going to read the full email. If you haven't seen it yet, it's, well, it's all over the Internet. You can find it. Um, and by the way, Donald Trump Jr. tweeted the messages out, although the emails were first reported on. Uh, apparently uh, a pair, uh, reported on the emails before they existed. Or, uh, not before they existed, before they were made public. The New York Times didn't have a copy of them, but apparently was aware of them and, and sources had given them information about the email. And then Donald Trump Jr. tweeted the emails out himself. Uh, the email, June 3rd, 2016, uh, from Rob Goldstone, who is a, a an associate of the Trumps, as uh, an entertainment uh, publicist. Uh, he writes, Good morning. Eamon just called and asked me to contact you with something very interesting. The Crown Prosecutor of Russia met with his father, Eris, this morning and in their meeting offered to provide the Trump campaign with some official documents and information that would incriminate Hillary and her dealings with Russia that would be very useful to your father. This is obviously very high-level and sensitive information, but as part of Russia and its government support for Mr. Trump, 
uh, helped along by Eris and Eamon. I, those are the, the contacts. Uh, what do you think is the best way to handle this information? Would you be able to speak to Eamon about it directly? Uh, I can also send this info to your father via Rana, but it's ultra sensitive, so I wanted to send to you first. What do we think? And I, I could tell you what you think. I'd love to hear what you think. Uh, I can tell you what I think. Love to hear what you think. 701-293-9000-888-970-9329. Email talk at WDAY.com. Um, first, I don't think the email in and of itself represents anything illegal. Now, you know, if did, did other people swear under oath, you know, did, does does this, you know, email contradict sworn testimony somewhere along the line? I don't know. This stuff is complicated, but. The act itself of meeting with this attorney, Donald Trump Jr., which he apparently did, he met with the uh, the attorney, and and he now says there you know nothing ever came of this, and I I don't know that we have any indication that there was any substantive information transacted uh, or that it was used in any way by the Trump campaign. Now maybe those are revelations that are yet to be made, but as it is now, it doesn't appear as though anything actually came with this. So what we have now is a meeting apparently with somebody linked to the Russian government. We have Eric uh, Donald Trump Jr. being told specifically this information is a part of the Russian government's support for Mr. Trump. And he took the meeting. Now, I don't think that's illegal. I don't think that necessarily breaks any laws. Campaigns meet with people who have negative information all the time. All campaigns do this. The Hillary Clinton campaign did that. So is this specifically illegal? Did this break any laws? I don't think it did. But here's the problem, because that's the talking point from Republicans right now, right? That's what everybody, oh, this wasn't illegal. There was nothing illegal about this. And what I'm afraid of, and I saw this on Twitter earlier, what I'm afraid of is that the Republicans are, are they're so focused in on whether this is illegal or legal, that they have lost sight of right and wrong. Because I'm sorry, Russia is an oppressive state run by a murderous thug. If somebody emails you and says that the Russian government is trying to help your father's campaign to be president of the United States of America... You maybe shouldn't take the meeting. It was wrong to take this meeting. He shouldn't have been in that room. They shouldn't have set up the meeting. It wasn't illegal. The meeting itself wasn't specifically illegal, but it was wrong. Deeply, troublingly wrong. Love to hear what you think. 701-293-9000-888-970-9329. Email talk at WDAY.com. We'll be back right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back, Rob Report on 970 WDAY, 701 293 I, I can't, Natil, I can't believe he took this meeting. I it, it, it floors me that he took it. And again, I think there's a lot of things that this is not. I don't think that this is evidence of why Hillary Clinton lost the election. I think Hillary Clinton lost the election because she was a terrible candidate and she didn't campaign in key swing states. So uh, this isn't why she lost the election. 
And if Democrats try to suggest it is, I think that's just them passing the buck on their own internal problems. I also don't think that there's evidence in these emails specifically of a crime. Now, if somebody lied under oath and this email contradicts that, that may be another matter. But the emails themselves, I don't think are indicative that this meeting itself was not illegal. It's not illegal for campaigns to meet with with people, even foreign governments, to get information about a a an opponent. There's nothing specifically illegal revealed in this email, nor is there any indication that that the the information, if any, that was transacted uh, was was used in any way. You know, maybe that information is still out there. So it's none of those things, but it is evidence that one member of the Trump campaign, Donald Trump Jr., was aware of the Russian government trying to help them, was explicitly told so in an email, and took the meeting. And that, to me, is just, it's damning, Natil. It's its bad. I completely agree with you there. I mean, you you want to talk about how nobody you know knew for sure that it was the Russians that were interfering in the election process. Well, seems to me that there was some pretty clear evidence to at least some of the people in one of the campaigns that the Russians were meddling in yeah. the election process. Well, let me I mean let, let me say let me say this. Good information is good information. And I'm a big believer if 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 information is true the source doesn't really matter, right? I mean if if they had something that was true about Hillary Clinton that was negative then I, I don't know that I care that much about the source, right? I mean, is is I mean, does Russia have their own motivations for handing over that information? Maybe, and those should be considered. But to me, information is information, and it doesn't. A lot of times, you know, the, the veracity of the information is what matters to me a lot more than than the source. Uh, you know, the, the source only matters in so much as it impacts the veracity. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, but that said. I mean, the, the Trump administration, I mean, they've been poo-pooing the Russian thing for so long, and yet here is Donald Trump Jr. specifically being told that this was the Russian government. And it wasn't just Donald Trump Jr. either. Jared Kushner was CC'd on these emails. Paul Manafort, who was the campaign advisor, was CC'd. So I, I don't know. Do you agree with me, Natil? I, I am not seeing a, a crime here. And I, I think the claim, Tim Kaine coming out and calling this treason is ridiculous. I think that's that's overwrought. I don't see a crime here. What I see is extremely poor judgment. I mean, this is this is really scummy, is what this is. This is I I, I I'm so, I'm just floored. I'm flabbergasted that this happened. It's absolutely scummy. And I, I agree with you in that I don't see anything illegal with it, but I say that with the caveat that I'm not a legal professional in any right. way, shape, or form. So I don't I don't know if the specifics violate specific law or not. Right. From where well, I'm, from where I'm what, standing, it doesn't seem to, but right. I could be wrong. Right. Well, I mean it kinda I mean, did someone I mean, did someone from did someone testify under oath somewhere? I mean, has the I mean because I, I have a feeling this is going to end up contradicting, and I haven't gone back and done in a, you know, I'm, I'm sure some people are working on that as I speak. But I mean, I'm, this is probably going to contradict statements from the Trump from the Trump campaign and or the Trump administration in the past, where they said they did not work with Russia. Well, they obviously set up a meeting to get information 
that they were explicitly told supposedly came from the Russian government. I mean, it's it's not like it's not like Donald Trump Jr. and Jared Kushner and Paul Manafort and Donald Trump himself and everybody else over there wasn't aware of the accusations that were being made about uh, Russia meddling in the election. Now, as I understand it, this happened shortly before the whole Russia thing really, I guess, became a part of the campaign. I, I would have to look at a timeline, but this sort of predated a lot of the Russian hysteria. But even so, they knew that, I mean, they had to have remembered this meeting, right? I mean, how, how do you forget? I mean, if, if, if Russia becomes such the, the, the huge issue that it has become later in your campaign, later in your administration, how do you not remember, oh, hey, remember that time we set up a meeting and we were supposed to get information that came from the Russian government. I mean, let me let me read from the email again. This is obviously very high level and sensitive information, but is part of Russia and its government support for Mr. Trump. It I, I don't know. I I'm having a hard time. I I Trump supporters, I want to hear it. How do you how do you defend this? 701-293-9000, How do you defend this? Because I can't. I don't think it was specifically illegal, but boy, I think it was wrong. I have a feeling we're going to find out this contradicts a lot of what Trump and, and his administration and his campaign have been saying about how they worked with, whether or not they worked with Russia, because obviously there was at least one instance here. What else are they lying about? Now, that's the big problem, isn't it? If, if this you know, turns out that these, you know, this particular thing was lied about that sort of opens up the door to distrust on pretty much everything else because of the the vehement way that the Trump administration and the Trump campaign has denied allegations on this leads me to believe that if they've been so vehement about those allegations and they lied about it, What's to have stopped them from lying about literally anything else that they have said? Since, well, why not? Since the why not just dump this at the beginning, right? I mean, right? the minute the accusations start flying, why not just put this out there and say, "Listen, there was this meeting. Uh, supposedly, there was information from the, from the Russian government. It turned out to be a big nothing burger. Uh, but we wanted to just be one hundred percent disclose this. Now, you're still going to get criticism, and you're still going to have people out there trying to connect the dots and everything because that's just what happens. But at least it wouldn't be popping up like this. Like like you waited till after the New York Times got wind of it and then you dump it. I mean it just it makes them look so bad. And I mean at this point you got to wonder is is the Trump administration ever going to actually be able to govern? By the way, Vice President Pence his uh his statement on this was pretty remarkable. Um this is this is the president. Uh, the vice president is working every day, and this is from uh, NBC News Capitol Hill correspondent Casey Hunt on Twitter. This is a statement from Vice President uh, uh, from Mark Lauder. He's the pri- press secretary for Vice President Pence. He says, "I quote: The vice president is working every day to advance the president's agenda. He was not aware of the meeting. He is also not focused on stories about the campaign, and this is the interesting part." especially those pertaining to the time before he joined the campaign. Wow. That's uh that would be the vice president putting some distance between himself and the president. All right, we're going to switch gears. We're going to talk about fiscal solvency with 
Eileen Norcross from the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. 701-293-9000-888-970-9329. Email talk at WDAY.com. We'll be back after this. Don't go away. Welcome back, Rob. Report on 970 WDAY, 701-293-9000, 888-970-9329. Email talk at WDAY.com. Don emails uh, about our, the topic in our last segment, uh, talking about Donald Trump Jr. and his email and an apparent meeting to get information that supposedly was coming from the Russian government. Uh, Don emails, regardless of whether something is illegal or illegal, the amorality of asking a, for, of asking a foreign government is amazing. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know that there's no indication here that the Trump campaign or anybody associated with Donald Trump um, asked the foreign government for information, but they did meet with them. And I agree. I don't know. Everybody's talking about the legality of it. I think we need to talk about the right and wrong with it because it sure seems wrong to me. Uh, all right. We're going to switch gears, though. We're going to talk with Eileen Norcross. She is the director for state and local policy at the Mercatus Center, George Mason University. Eileen, thank you uh, for your time today. Thanks for having me on. You put out a report about um, basically uh, fiscal solvency uh, among the states. North Dakota ranked number two. Minnesota ranked number 24. First of all, tell us a little bit about what does this report measure? I mean, what, what, what are we after this report? What are we looking at? Uh, the report looks at the financial statements that the states put out, and the data here is from 2015, so it's uh, you know it's two, two years old. But we're looking at um, cash solvency. Uh, does the state have enough cash on hand to cover the short-term uh, budget? Do they are their revenues match their expenses? Uh, and then the long run, we look at uh, liabilities re- relative to assets, and also their pensions and uh, other benefits to workers. How well funded they are. Now I, I realize that there's a delay in the numbers. I mean, we're we're talking about 2015 numbers. It's it's 2017, but cash solvency. You rank North Dakota number six. I think a lot of people are probably wondering how we ranked so high when we just came through a legislative session earlier this year where we had to had to slash and burn budgets. You know, I, I if if that's measuring whether or not we have enough cash to cover our short term bills. Uh, you know, clearly we didn't because given what we just had to do with our budget. Uh, that's a great question. It gets to a heart of why I do these rankings. Um, we have financial information that seems to give the impression that states like Alaska and North Dakota are, are flush with cash, and that's going to set the tone for how policymakers think about, you know, how we're going to spend money. You go back to 2014 in North Dakota, and you have this, this sense of we've got, we have a windfall. We've got all this oil revenue coming in. Times are good. And that gets built into budgets. Uh, you know, and then two years later, you know, where you had a $2 billion reserve in 2014, now you're looking at a billion-dollar shortfall. And I think in the case of uh, North Dakota and Alaska, uh, that's the situation there. Yeah, you've got a lot of cash that puts you at the top, but how is that cash being managed? And does it match up with how you're spending it? So you go and look at service-level solvency for both those states, and you see this huge gap between uh, the the amount of revenues that are collected uh, and expenses and revenues relative to the income of state residents. Is it supportable with a more stable tax structure? And I think that's what North Dakota is looking at now. Yeah, we rank 50th in that category, by the way. Uh, 701-293-9000, 888-970-9329. Now, I mean, obviously, you're looking at all the states. I, I tend to focus on North Dakota primarily. 
And, you know, one thing that, that we do here, because I, I heard you just refer, you know, we had $2 billion in reserves or whatever. Mm-hmm. I, I think that confuses a lot of people because North Dakota budgets based on projections, right? When, when our mm-hmm. lawmakers met earlier this year and they said, we're going to spend this much money on this and this much money on that, what they were basing that on was a forecast which made assumptions about how much revenue the state was going to come in. So basically, the lawmakers are told by the experts, this is how much money you're going to have, and then the lawmakers spend that money. But And so a lot of times what would be reported is a $2 billion surplus. Well, that didn't mean the state had $2 billion sitting around somewhere. That meant the state was expected to take in $2 billion more than it spent. Um, yep. But that money doesn't ever actually exist. So how much does that enter into this? Because I think a lot of times people are misled by that. We kind of assume, mm-hmm. like, it's me writing checks out of my checking account to pay my bills. I have the money. Well, I should have the money in my checking account to cover the checks I'm writing. But really, the state of North Dakota doesn't do that. Is that common? Do a lot of states do that? Yeah. You know, you're, you're, you're hitting on another great point and, and a motivation for, for the study we're doing is how good is this data? Uh, is, is this really financial reality? Uh, you're right to note that the, the budget in North Dakota was based on a summer on, on very rosy, op, you know, economic assumptions that there's going to be this revenue flowing in, and it's then you know categorized as reserves, and certainly it, it then that gives the impression, hey, we can we can spend at a certain level. Other states, yeah, they do this. They say, you know, we, we think income revenues are going to be strong. We were we're optimistic. We're bullish about the future, and if that doesn't come through then you've got you know, a gap. Uh, so it's, it's not uncommon. Um, you know, it's, it's a little bit subjective, too, yeah, how people come up with the estimates. Sure, they're looking at economic data, but there might be a little subjectivity there, too. Well, also, like in a state like North Dakota, where we're dominated, I mean, a lot of it's commodity prices, right? I mean, we're trying to figure mm-hmm. out what the oil markets are going to do or what, I, you know, I don't know, the soybean markets are going to do, the wheat markets are going to do. I mean, all that impacts our revenues in a big, big way, and mm-hmm. they are extremely full. I mean, particularly the energy, oil markets are, mm-hmm. are extremely volatile. So, uh, you know, that, that makes it very difficult. Now, I mean, the thing, though, is that I, I think a lot of people are going to look at, at your study and they're going to see North Dakota number two in fiscal solvency. Mm-hmm. And I've already seen politicians in our state, you know, tweeting out links to your report and, and putting it on Facebook and slapping themselves on the back. Does your report not? I mean, I I think a lot of people, I mean, putting North Dakota number two, when clearly we were in a situation, I mean, is that not misleading as well? Um, no, I mean, in the study itself, there's a lot of qualifiers that, first of all, yeah, we rank them, and ranking is relative. You can be number two in, in, you know, in, in a list of not-so-great performers as well. They are, they are strong on these metrics in 2015. There's no doubt about it. But I think it's important to note, uh, first, we talk about it in the study. Uh, this is not sustainable. Oil revenues are a factor here. Look at Alaska. Alaska dropped $10 billion between last year and this year. Uh, they're number 17. Uh, so it's, it's a cautionary tale. Look at your service level solvency. So it's not the rank. Yeah, sure, the rank, it's number two, looks great, but look at the metrics. Look at the metrics. What are they telling you? Put them in the bigger picture of what's happening in your state, and then say to yourself, you know, should we be riding high on this when we get a windfall? How do we manage it? How do you manage those expectations? And I, so I think that's yeah. the lesson. Yeah, well, I, I think fiscal management is obviously on the minds of a lot of North Dakotans, because, I mean, this this was painful. I mean, we went through you know, at least in terms of the state budget, went through a boom and bust cycle where we exploded spending and then we ran out of revenues and then we had to slash and burn spending. And I mean, whatever you think about that in terms of, of policy and, and whether you agree or disagree with how they spent the money, you can't do that, right? You can't have these sharp ups and downs. So I, fiscal management is definitely on the minds of a lot of North Dakotans. From your perspective, 
I mean, what could states do to better measure their fiscal health in, to, to in turn make better po- public policy decisions when it comes to taxes and spending? Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I think one is, you know, when, when you're when you're drawing your revenues from a volatile source, be very careful. Uh, oil revenues are not a traditional source of revenue. Uh, income, sales, these are stable sources of revenue. So right there, you know, if, if you're drawing on those revenues, you're, you're looking at volatility. So don't be exuberant in your spending. Um, that, so, yes, I mean, I think we've already talked about uh, the need for realistic forecasting in terms of revenues, some humility in those projections. Um, and then, you know, rainy day funds, one, one thing in these, these financial financial reports, they don't break out the rainy day fund. They just say, here's the cash. So I think uh, better keeping on tabs on that rainy day fund. This is the first year that states are reporting their pension liabilities in their financial statements. So that's another you know, piece of information. A lot of states are just kind of, it's there, but it's not there. Um, so having the best numbers on debt, on pension liabilities, reporting it accurately, I think would help a lot of these states. Well, and that is a, I mean, that's a new thing. I, there's been a lot of people, I've, I've written pretty extensively about it in the past as well, but I think a lot of people forget because it's such a, it's such a nebulous thing, right? I mean, a lot of, the, there's a, there's a sort of, uh, uh, moral hazard there because we have one group of politicians who make promises on pensions that might not have to be filled until a generation or so later when all of a sudden now it's a problem because a bunch of politicians for political reasons made promises that, the state can't necessarily follow through on how how bad a shape is ours because I'm looking at your numbers here. It says uh, our funded ratio is 65 percent for our pensions. The national mm-hmm. average is 74 percent. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it yep. seems like we're below average. I mean, that doesn't seem very good. Yeah, uh, 65 percent definitely is something worth paying attention to. The relative ranking, there are states that are in a lot worse shape. Kentucky's in, in the 30s. Um, but that doesn't mean don't pay attention to this. I then revalue it. I value the pension like it's a bond. So I, I calculate it's even less well-funded than that. Um, that being said, relative to the other states, I think North Dakota has some, some years, some room here to, um, to make sure they're, they're funding that more fully or undertake pension reform if, if that's something the state's looking at. You know, do it now. Don't wait for uh, a situation like a Kentucky or a Connecticut. I think many of the states have to pay attention to this, uh, this pension issue because of the measurement issues, the lack of funding in some states. Um, so it's, it's a warning flag for most of the states, I think. Give us, give us an overview of how Minnesota did. Uh, Minnesota is is number twenty four. They're sort of a middling state. Um, they're, they're, they've, their cash is average. They have enough to cover the short term. They have they, st- they still have uh, revenues that exceed expenses, so they've got a little bit left over. Um, their budget situation is pretty good, and uh, their liabilities are are pretty good. They're better than average. They uh, their long term liabilities, despite the fact that their pension liabilities have gone up um, a bit this year, and some of that is reporting. They're starting to put it on the books. So I would say pay attention, Minnesota, to uh, the those pension liabilities, and you know, hopefully, continue to um, to exercise fiscal discipline in the in the short run. Eileen, thanks for your time. Thank you. That's Eileen, director for state and local policy at the Mercatus Center from George Mason University. Interesting report. It's the fiscal solvency report for the Mercatus Center. If you want to check it out online, I'm Rob Port. This is the Rob Report on 970 WDAY 701-293-9000-888-970-9329. Email talk at WDAY.com. We'll be back right after this. Look away.
Welcome back, Rob Report. If you want to get on the last few minutes, 701-293-9000, email talk at WDAY.com. Budget situations are always so complicated, and there, there are so many issues out there. You know, a lot of times you read the headlines and you you hear about a billion-dollar surplus there or, or a you know billion-dollar shortfall there, whatever it is. I mean, it's it's a little misleading sometimes because there's a lot going on there, you know, especially in North Dakota. Again, I, I don't think people realize the lawmakers, when they're making their budgets, are not spending money that's sitting in a bank. You know, they're spending money that they expect to collect in the future. And that changes things because what you actually what you think you're going to get versus what you actually get can change, which was the problem over the last couple of years for the state is they spent more than the state ended up taking in and they kept having to adjust the budget to match collections. So I don't know. I it seems like there's gotta be a better way to do it, but we're dealing with politicians, so who knows? Also on the Donald Trump Jr. thing, I mean I, I guess President Trump just came out, uh, thanked his son for his transparency, called him a high geez, what was it? I what was the statement? Like a high caliber individual or something like that. Some Trumpism like that. I don't know. Um I don't know. I mean, I'm interested. I want to hear the. I want to hear the president explain this. I, I want to know how deep this went. I want to understand how it is that they. I mean, were they offered information from the the way the email to Donald Trump Jr. is worded? I mean, it sure makes it sound like it's just common knowledge that the Russian government is helping the campaign. I mean, did they all just know this? Was this just something they were all? thinking of i mean was i mean had there been previous offers were there other instances where information was offered to them that was sourced to the russian government and again i'm not even necessarily saying anything was was illegal about that by the way i'm looking at it but again and i i think the emailer made this point uh that i read in the last segment don and i think i made this point earlier in the program it's not even really a question about legal versus illegal. It's a question of right and wrong. And I'm sorry, Donald Trump Jr. taking that meeting was wrong. Speaking of which, Attila, we have uh, Donald Trump supporter Kevin Kramer on our program tomorrow. And, we do indeed. Uh, He's on with us every Wednesday. I feel like this is something we need to talk with him about. I'm interested in hearing what his uh, what his spin on this is going to be because... I don't know. I mean, unless there's some mitigating information out there, and a lot of times there are on these reports. We get these breathless media reports, and then it turns out it's it's maybe more complicated than we were first told about. But I don't know. I mean, I'm reading this email. It looks indefensible to me. I mean, it looks indefensible. It really does. And And when you have the vice president sort of distancing himself, that statement I read from Vice President Mike Pence where he's kind of saying, you know, he's not going to comment on things that happened before he joined the campaign. Boy, if if that's not if that's not a politician creating some distance, creating some plausible deniability, I don't know what is. This is this is big. I mean, I I have a lot of the stuff about Russia and everything has sort of fallen off Trump in the past. You know, a lot of it has turned out to be hyperbole. A lot of it has turned out to be overblown. A lot of it's turned out to be, frankly, flat-out false, just not accurate. But this, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't know how Donald Trump's son, Donald Trump Jr., can be told that they are going to be provided information 
from the Russian government that's negative about Hillary Clinton and just say, well, great, let's take that meeting. Let's loop in the campaign manager. Let's loop in Jared Kushner, who is now one of President Trump's top advisors. And they're just okay with that? It's wrong, first of all. Second of all, it shows a shocking lack of judgment. But that's it for me today. Jay Thomas Show coming up next. Kevin Kramer joins us tomorrow for our weekly open phone segment. Tune in for that. You can always catch me here 1 to 2 p.m. Monday through Friday or 24 hours a day, seven days a week at sayanythingblog.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk again. How could I ever call you mine?